Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. This next story was a major news event and appeared in newspapers all over the world, but you don't hear about it now. It completely shocked the people, mainly because it was just so blatant. So this week we travel back to 1841, and it included amongst the events that happened that year were on February the 4th, the first known reference to Groundhog Day in North America appeared in the diary of James Morris. On June the 6th, the United Kingdom census is held, the first to record names and approximate ages of every household member and is to be administered nationally. On October the 30th, a fire at the Tower of London destroys its Grand Armoury and causes a quarter of a million pounds worth of damage. And on December the 20th, the first multilateral treaty for the suppression of the African slave trade is signed in London by the representatives of Austria, Britain, France, Prussia and Russia. But we're going back to Thursday the 15th of April, when William Wayman, a former soldier who had returned from active duty two years previously, had collected his quarter pension in Bristol taking his landlady's little boy with him and returned to his lodgings the same night at about 9pm, very drunk. The boy, by the way, returned home at 6pm. He had been lodging in the house of Mary Jeffreys in Alverston Green for about five weeks and when he returned he had a quart of gin and on the following Friday he'd started drinking very early again, finishing the gin before 11am. His landlady's little girl saw a gun in Wayman's coat and told her mother, who asked what he was planning to do with it. He said that he'd been asked to shoot a sick horse belonging to a man named Millard in the neighbourhood, and he left the house, going in the direction of Millard's house. But instead of going to Millard's house, he went instead to the home of Mrs Anne Cook at about 2pm. She lived near to William Fisher. Now, when he got there, he sat down at the kitchen table and said that he had been out walking, looking for Fisher with an air to butcher him or shoot him. Mrs Cook thought he was joking and asked what for, but Wayman just stood up quietly and left. 
he returned to his lodgings, telling the landlady that the horse was much better and didn't need to be put down. He then went to his room and lay on the bed for a while before heading out again, jumping over the stile, leading to Fisher's house, five fields over. Word of the Week Now this week, may I offer you the word sapient, which means wise, but usually said ironically. For example, Oh sapient professor, why do your theories so rarely work in practice? On that Friday, William Wayman was seen by many locals wandering around between his lodgings and William Fisher's house. Then, on the Saturday morning, Wayman woke up, sober, and once again made up a story about checking on Millard's sick horse. He left at about 10am with his pistol in his pocket and made his way to a cider house in Tockington, kept by a man called Thomas. Mr William Fisher, aged 54, was a well-respected landowner, just having a drink in his local cider house in the hamlet of Orkley, near Tockington, with two friends, Richard Knapp and James Cullingmore. He'd spent the day in Bristol with a cartload of potatoes for sale, when in walked William Wayman, who requested a pint of cider, which he was duly served. William Fisher then called him over to sit with them, and he did. There was no altercations or hostilities at all. Whilst he was there, though, the landlady Eliza Thomas noticed a cavalry pistol inside his coat, which she could see was heavily loaded, and she expressed some concern and alarm at this. Wayman, though, was known to shoot cattle for butchers in the neighbourhood, as well as other odd jobs like cleaning guns. This helped him to live as his meagre pension was not sufficient. So Wayman explained all this to the landlady and also said that the gun wasn't loaded. Wayman ordered another half gallon of cider and was told that he had plenty on the table. Then Cullimore told the group that Wayman was going to lend Fisher five pounds, at which Fisher said that it was a lie and Wayman didn't have five pounds. Wayman then said that he had 30 and nine to which Fisher again called him a liar. William Wayman then started talking to others in the pub, where he was well known, and said that he had just been to the post office, where he had received a penny letter containing £50 to be delivered to a man named Thomas Jarrett. The farmers there, knowing that he was often shy of the truth, joked about this. Fisher then exclaimed, You are one of the greatest liars in England. This comment got many laughs in the pub, and Wyman immediately said, If you come outside and repeat that, you shall never kick again. Mr Fisher repeated the word liar several times to the amusement of the others, and Wyman said he'd had quite enough, and rising from his seat, he left the room, and went into the kitchen for a couple of minutes. He returned a few moments later, came up behind Mr Fisher, and putting the muzzle of a large cavalry pistol close to his cheek, fired. The contents of the pistol passed through both cheeks, dividing the tongue in two and shattering the lower part of his face.
William Fisher fell instantly to the floor. The pistol dropped beside him. James Cullimore, who was sitting next to William Fisher on the settle at the time, fell upon him. He saw that the pistol had rebounded from Wayman's hands and landed between his legs, so he picked it up and ran out of the room. When he realised that he wasn't actually hurt, he returned to the scene and saw the blood flowing over the floor. That's when he left the room for good and never returned. Wayman then turned to the landlady and said, I have done it and I'm not going to run. Mr James Rawlings Monday, a surgeon, happened to be riding by at the time and heard the shot. He came into the building and tried to help, but the injuries were far too severe and Mr Fisher died shortly afterwards. During all of this, Wayman stood coolly at one side of the room, observing the proceedings before exclaiming, That was a dead shot, I warrant. And then he left the house. The surgeon, Rawlings Monday, followed him and stated in court that The prisoner was in a state of great excitement, his face flushed, his knees trembling, and he was obliged to lean on me for support. However, I saw nothing in his conduct which indicated insanity. Wayman was quickly apprehended and instead of showing any remorse for the dreadful deed, he appeared to glory in what he had done by saying, I am quite satisfied with what I have done. My pistol has been loaded for four days with four marbles and I would have shot Fisher on Friday if I could have met him, but I couldn't find him. When I saw him this morning, I considered it was time to do it and I have harboured it in my breast from before I went for a soldier. The constable that had apprehended Wayman said that the prisoner had told him, I will go anywhere with you, for I know I shall be hanged for it, but I shall die happy as it was all for that woman. He didn't mention the woman's name, but it was understood to be about the deceased's wife to whom he had declared his love to some 20 years previously before going into the army when she was only 12. The pistol that was used for the murder had burst when it was fired as it was overloaded, and in custody, Wayman made further statements, contradicting what he had previously said, this time stating that Fisher had some money of his, which he had refused to give him. Book of the Week One thing about lockdown is it gives you more time to read books, and here is a really good one for you. The Witches of New York by Amy McKay, a BuzzFeed best gift book of the year. BuzzFeed says it's a dark, atmospheric and feminist story of three women in New York's gilded age, each determined to thrive in a society hell-bent on keeping them down and using their coven to do so. This is set in the Victorian era, and if you know much about the Victorian age, you'll know that they were very interested in all things death. They would photograph their dead, they'd cut pieces of hair and make them into jewellery, and all sorts of things like that. And this book focuses on three women who all have wonderful characters. It's a delightful blending of witch hunting by a reverend who feels it is his mission to stamp out all evil, and some real history, the suffragette movement, and the arrival of an important artefact. This is a book with a glorious atmosphere, a sprawling endeavour to lose oneself in an amazing mix of history and magic. 
Hi, I'm Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-time depression sufferer and caffeine fiend. In Not Before Coffee, I talk about everything from books, TV and movies to the more serious topics, like my own personal journey through life, struggling with various mental health issues. But not until I've had at least three mugs of the roasted bean and temporarily sated my long-term addiction. So, if you want to get to know more about me and all the ways I pass my time during the week, not including work, and you fancy the idea of hearing me talk about the things that interest me, new books, old books, TV and movies of all kinds, plus the weird and wonderful of my everyday, and how I got into writing about cars for a living despite not having a driving licence, then tune in to Not Before Coffee. Found where all good podcasts are, so pretty much everywhere. On the following Monday, an inquest was held at the Swan in Orkley before Joyner Ellis Esquire and a jury. The facts were given and a verdict of willful murder was returned. Weeman, who was about 48 years old, was taken to Gloucester for trial at the next assizes on the 4th of August, 1841. In the Gloucestershire prison records, he is described as having grey, scanty hair, light grey eyes, a scar on his left thumb and varicose veins on his left leg. Twenty years previously, Wyman was part of a robbery on Almondsbury Hill, but avoided prosecution by enlisting into the army and leaving the country. He then served for several years and was present at the Battle of Waterloo, and on his return, he lived off his army pension, topping up by doing errands. and they had lived a happy life together until his death. During the court case in August, Mr Keating for the prosecution stated that the conduct of the prisoner could only be accounted for upon the supposition that he was insane. The jury immediately returned a verdict of guilty and the judge put on his black cap and said, Prisoner at the bar, you have been convicted of a deliberate murder committed upon the person of an innocent and unoffending man against whom for years you seem to have nourished some secret grudge, the cause of which is only known to yourself. I know not what your course of life has hitherto been or whether you have had the advantage of religious instruction to prepare you for the awful event which awaits you. If you have not hitherto enjoyed that advantage, I trust during the short period you have to live, you will attend assiduously to the instructions of the persons who will endeavour to prepare you as well as they can for your approaching change. It is now only for me to pass upon you the solemn sentence of the law, and that sentence is that for the offence you have committed, you be taken hence to the prison from whence you came, and from thence to a place of execution, and that you be hanged by the neck until you be dead, and that your body be buried within the presence of the prison. Now you're listening to Alice on the Backtracker History Show, and I'm always interested in hearing from you. 
You can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. News just in. Man from Bradley Stoke has confessed that he was addicted to the hokey cokey for the last five years. But luckily, he's managed to turn himself around. Fortunes changed for convicted murderer William Wayman when in October of that year, the Secretary of State sent a communication saying that he should be reprieved on condition of his being transported for life. He was moved from the county jail to the Warrior Hulk at Woolwich and arrived there on the 27th of September. What is a prison hulk, I hear you say? Well, they're also known as prison ships and they were decommissioned vessels used during the 18th and 19th centuries to house prisoners of war and those waiting to be transported to penal colonies around the world. They were saturated with death, disease and despair. These ships were often converted from some of the Royal Navy's most celebrated vessels. The use of these hulks was supposed to be a temporary measure and was authorised by Parliament for only two years, but, despite objections from some parliamentary members about the inhumanity of the conditions, the 1776 Act lasted a total of 80 years. It was regularly extended and renewed in the hope that a better solution would come along. As it was costing the Crown a lot to house the convicts there, they ended up being put to work improving the River Thames. Convict labour was also used for the development of the Woolwich Arsenal and nearby docks. The convicts would work long hours and were manacled at night. James Hardy Vaux was a prisoner on the Retribution, an old Spanish vessel at Woolwich, during the early 1800s, and while waiting to be transported for the second time to New South Wales, he recalled... Every morning at seven o'clock, all the convicts capable of work, or, in fact, all who are capable of getting into the boats, are taken ashore to the Warren, in which the Royal Arsenal and other public buildings are situated, and they're employed at various kinds of labour, some of them very fatiguing. And whilst so employed, each gang of 16 or 20 men is watched and directed by a fellow called a guard. And these guards are commonly of the lowest class human beings, wretches devoid of feeling, ignorant in the extreme, brutal by nature, and rendered tyrannical and cruel by the consciousness of the power they possess. William Wayman finally left Plymouth on the 20th of November, 1841, aboard the Somersetshire, a transport ship for people from Bristol and Somerset, going to Port Phillip, Victoria. This was only the second and last transport trip for the Somersetshire. It was not without incident. This particular trip was under the command of Charles Motley and arrived at Hobart Town on the 30th of May, 1842. She started with 219 male convicts. One died on the voyage. There was also one officer and 30 from the 51st King's Own Light Infantry to provide guard. What makes this voyage notable was the mutiny plot 
that some prisoners developed during the voyage. The mutineers' plan was to murder the officers, place in the ship's boats those who would not join the mutiny, and then sail to South America. The convicts succeeded in getting several of the guard to join their plot. It is not entirely clear how the officers discovered the plot, but Captain Muckley decided to put into Table Bay. There was a two-week court-martial, trying the four soldiers who were part of the planned mutiny, with one of the four testifying against his companions. The court-martial sentenced the ringleader to death by firing squad, and the other two to transportation. The transport ship Surrey would pick up six prisoners at the Cape when she stopped there later that year, and the two mutinous soldiers may have been among them. Somersetshire left the Cape on the 12th of April and encountered no further issues on her voyage. She arrived in Sydney on the 28th of June, 1842, having sailed from Hobart in ballast. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 15th of November 1899, when Queen Victoria opened a convalescence home at Redland in Bristol, without even leaving her carriage. Also on the 15th, in 1864, during the American Civil War, General William Sherman captured and burned Atlanta at the beginning of the March to the Sea. On the 16th of November, in 1603, Walter Raleigh went on trial accused of treason against Queen Elizabeth I. Also on the 16th of November, 1910, three miners were killed and 27 injured in an accident at a colliery in Sanwell, Bristol. On the 18th of November, 1852, the state funeral of the Duke of Wellington took place. And on the 19th of November... In 1794, the Jay Treaty between the USA and Britain was signed in London. It ended the British occupation of military posts in northwestern parts of US territory and altered the terms of US commerce with Britain and its colonies. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>